All right, welcome back to the Come Follow Me Bible Challenge. My name is Jeremy Howard. I'm the pastor of Orchard Hills Bible Church in Payson, Utah, and we're continuing the study in the book of Exodus following the schedule uh, for the curriculum from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints going through the Old Testament in a year for the adult Sunday school classes. And today we find ourselves in Exodus 16. Exodus chapter 16, where the Israelites are out in the wilderness. They've been led out of Egypt, and now they find themselves in a wilderness, and they're hungry. Exodus 16.3, the sons of Israel said, What or would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full, for you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly together with hunger. Bottom line, they're hungry and they're complaining to Moses. They wish they were dead. It's been like six minutes since they went through the Red Sea and God miraculously saved them. And now they're showing their sin nature by being just a bunch of whiners. Verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. And this was, of course, that they may keep the Sabbath day on the seventh day and not go out and gather on the seventh day, and God will provide twice as much on the sixth day. Wow, that's pretty gracious of God. Instead of striking them down right then and there, He decides to provide bread for them, even though they're whining, complaining against him. And he's going to provide extra on uh, Fridays. So that way they don't have to work on Saturday, the seven days as we know it today. Well, we uh, find out later in the chapter that they actually did go out to gather on On Saturday, they're just so bad at keeping God's commands, aren't they? They went out to, to gather, and God said, what are you doing? How long are you going to disobey? Well, let's drop down to verse 31 of the same chapter, Exodus 16, 31. The house of Israel named this bread that came from heaven manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. Very interesting description. Of, of all of this. It was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. Verse 32, then Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. Verse 35, the sons of Israel ate manna 40 years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate the manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. And then it says in parentheses, now an omer is a tenth of an ephah. And I'm sure that really helps you. I have a little note here that says that an ephah was approximately one boo, B-U. Boy, that's really helpful, isn't it? Now you know exactly how much that was. 
Oh, silly, silly. Well, uh, again, what's going on here? Big picture. God is displaying His covenant faithfulness to His people by providing for them, even as they are whining, complaining, grumbling against not only God's appointed leader, Moses, and his brother Aaron, but against God Himself, just moments after rescuing them out of the land of Egypt. What on earth are they doing? Well, they're showing just how sinful man is and just how good God is, aren't they? Well, there's so much more to know about this whole thing. I want us to jump to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John chapter 6, starting in verse 26. Let's look at what Jesus says about this manna stuff, because his commentary is perfect, right? And he shows us some very interesting uh, truths regarding the, uh, the manna that God provided. In John 6, 26, Jesus had already fed the 5,000, and he's talking to some Pharisees, I believe. Let's see. I'm scrolling up. Does it say Pharisees? Maybe it doesn't say Pharisees. No, it doesn't say Pharisees. He was talking to some crowds. Verse 22, there was a crowd, and uh, he was speaking to them. Yeah, I guess that's as specific as we get. And the crowd asked Jesus when he got there. They're following Jesus. They're seeking after Jesus. Okay, so it's a crowd seeking after Jesus. And they said, when did you get here? And Jesus answered them and said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Uh, They were present at the feeding of the 5,000. And he says, Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him the Father, God, has set his seal. Wow, that's an amazing statement. And their reply is, Therefore they said to him, What shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Hmm. Jesus had just told them, Do not work for food which perishes, like the bread from the feeding of the 5,000, the loaves that filled their tummies that caused them to pursue Jesus. He says, Don't work for that, but work for the food which endures to eternal life. And so their natural response is, What are these works? We want to work the works of God. What shall we do? And this is the great question that religious people always ask themselves. What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Now, you probably have some thoughts in your head about how you think Jesus might answer them. So I want you to consider, what do you think Jesus is going to say? It, the answer might surprise you. If, you. if you don't know it off the top of your head, this might be a surprising answer to you. Jesus didn't say, get baptized, go to church, tithe. Uh, He didn't say, make this commitment to this group and and endure to the end. He didn't say any of that. Look at what he says. Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Now stop right there. Surely there's got to be more. Believing, of course, yes, that's important, but I've heard it said, faith is an action word, right? So it's not just believing, 
but it's works. What works must we do? Jesus gives them this statement and that's it. This is the work of God. This is, this is comprehensive that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said, okay, we will believe and we will trust in you, Jesus, and we're going to rely on you totally, completely. That's it. No, that's not what they said. Verse 30, they said to him, what then do you do for a sign so that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? They go on to say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, It is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread out of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet do not believe. So Jesus here is contrasting manna with the true bread, which he is saying is himself. He is saying that man's condition, of course, is one that can be summed up by death because he says he gives life to all men. If he gives life, life to all men, that means that man must be dead. If man already had life, well, we don't thanks, but no thanks, Jesus, we're good. But he's giving life. So man is in a dead condition. And this, of course, is the effect of sin. Sin brings about death, not just physical death, but spiritual death. Man is dead and needs life. And so he is called upon to believe to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to receive that bread of life, in order to be filled with the life that God gives. What an amazing thing. So Jesus is saying that man needs to come to life and that the way he comes to life is by believing on the person and work of Jesus Christ, period, period. We're not, we're not saying this is the first in a long list of things to do. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying this is the work of God to believe on Jesus. Just as those Israelites picked up the manna and ate the manna, and that's how God was providing for them, Jesus is saying, here's here's the Son of God himself. Believe in me. Take on me. How How can you take on Jesus and receive life? By believing in him. That's it. Believing in Jesus. Let's keep reading a little bit. Verse 37, all that the father gives me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. Wow. Wow. That's incredible. I forgot to switch to this camera view. There we go. Jesus has come down out of heaven. Did you know he's the only one to come down out of heaven? 
Earlier in John's gospel, it says that no one has seen God at any time, that no one uh, has actually seen God, but there's only been one who's come down out of heaven, Jesus Christ. And he's come down from heaven, verse 38, not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent me. And that will, it says in verse 39, is that of all the people that he's given him, he will lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. So there are those who are going to come to Christ, who are going to be saved because they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. They work the work of God and none of them will be lost because this is God's doing. It's an amazing thing. So as we think about manna in Israel, we can think of the greater expression of the bread of heaven, the bread of life, which is Jesus Christ. Now, in the middle of all that manna talk, let's, uh, let's pull up the Exodus text again. Middle of all the manna talk, there is the talk about the Sabbath. Okay, um, let's see. It says uh, in verse 26 of Exodus 16, Six days you shall gather the manna, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. And this is the part I was telling you about earlier. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather. What are they thinking? But they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Here's this uh, principle of the Sabbath. And this, of course, goes all the way back to Genesis. We have God resting from his works on the seventh day. We have here in Israel, as they're in the wilderness, the seventh day being observed as a day of rest. Later in the Ten Commandments, the fourth commandment is to remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. The Sabbath day becomes a big part of life in Israel. But did you know that the Sabbath also finds its ultimate expression in the person and work of Jesus Christ? I want to show you briefly Hebrews chapter 4, starting with verse 4. Hebrews 4, verses 4 to 10 the author here is talking about the rest that God has and how Israel, through all of their events, all of their circumstances, they've not been able to enjoy the rest of God. Through David, through Joshua, through Moses, they've not been able to actually access the rest of the God's rest, I should say. The rest of God sounds weird. They've not been able to access God's rest. And there there have been moments where they have, and we'll read about that here in a moment. There have been moments in Israel's history where they've experienced some sort of rest, but they've not reached the ultimate substance of God's rest. And so let's pick up in Hebrews 4, verse 4. It says that God has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains... For some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David, after so long a time, just as been said before, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Verse 8, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath 
rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his, God's rest, has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. Now, this can be pretty complicated as you try to think about what is being said here in this passage. But here's the basic idea. Joshua was used of God to lead God's people into the promised land to defeat Israel's enemies. Yet through the work of Joshua, what God was doing in Joshua's leading the people of Israel, they were not able to actually find rest, were they? They were not able to reach a point where they could finally feel settled and at rest. Israel was still constantly plagued by their own sin, by their enemies. They were troubled by all sorts of things. They didn't actually have that final rest and peace. Yet, there is a Sabbath rest today that you can have. You can enter into that final rest and that final peace. You can enter into a ceasing from works and from a total rest in God. And that is through the work of Jesus Christ. What Joshua couldn't do for Israel, Jesus can do for the people of God, for the church. Jesus offers final rest because you can cease from your works. Israel always had the law hovering over them, didn't they? Of all these commands they had to keep. And while there's a law hovering over you, you are never going to enjoy a final Sabbath rest. You will just have these little moments here and there. Once a week, you'll have a Sabbath rest, right? But that's not an ultimate expression of rest. Because the next day, you got to get back to work, so to speak. Well, with Jesus... Once for all, it is finished. There is nothing left for you to do to earn any righteousness with God, to uphold your end of the deal, to keep God from cursing you. There is none of that. There is no display of personal righteousness so that you remain in God's good favor. Instead, what you have is a resting on the credentials of Jesus Christ alone, the only perfect one, so that you can enjoy Sabbath rest, not just once a week, not just for a moment, but for now and for all eternity. Because this is the work of God. Not that you work your fingers to the bone and try to find your own Sabbath rest, but that you rest from your own works because you're resting on the work of Jesus Christ. And you have that for all eternity. He is your righteousness. Isn't that amazing? One more thing I want to show you in the book of Exodus. Oh, this is going a little long. Sorry. One more thing I want to show you. And that's in Exodus 17. This has to do with the rock that provides water. Continuing on in the wilderness, it says, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel... Oh, got to switch my screen here. There we go. All the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of of sin according to the command of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. That sounds like a pretty desperate situation, doesn't it? Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. (laughs) 
<laughs> What's Moses going to do? He's going to snap his fingers and it's going to rain? You know what? Okay. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? Now that's the real issue there, isn't it? Not trusting God, not having hearts of faith, but testing, trying the Lord. But the people thirsted there for water, like I am right now. My throat's kind of dry. Sorry about that. The people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? They're always worried about dying, aren't they? Man, they're thinking, we're going to die of hunger with the manna earlier. And then now we're going to die of thirst. We have no water. Verse 4, <clears throat> so Moses, the perf, not perfect, the intercessor that God appointed. I almost said the perfect intercessor. That's Jesus, isn't it? Moses is the foreshadowing of the perfect intercessor. So Moses, the intercessor that God appointed for Israel, cried out to the Lord saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. So now Moses is afraid of dying. <laughs> he says, this mob is going to go crazy. They're very thirsty. Then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. And he named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Well, again, amid the whining, grumbling, complaining of the Israelites, God is showing his covenant faithfulness to his people. He provides for them water when he didn't have to. They're rebelling against him, rebelling against his appointed leader in Israel, and he shows them covenant faithfulness with his provision. And this staff, you may have caught there in the reading, that Moses had a staff in his hand that he struck the Nile with previously. This was during the plagues. One of the plagues was that the water turned to blood, and Moses struck the Nile with his staff, and the water turned to blood. Well, that same staff now is being used to strike a rock and... Out of the rock comes pure water. Instead of water going to blood, water, pure water comes out of a rock that Israel is able to drink. That's pretty amazing. And uh, the same staff that is used to pour out wrath and judgment on a nation is here used to provide for the people of God. I think there's something noteworthy about that, isn't there? But the same God is working this in Israel, and he's providing for them in a lot of the same way that he struck Egypt in his judgment and in his wrath. Well, again, we go to the New Testament and we see some interesting connections. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul talks about this rock. There's a lot to see in this passage, but we're just going to focus on uh, the, the rock talk, as it were. Starting in verse 1. Paul says to the church in Corinth, For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food. So here he's talking about the people of God in the Old Covenant, namely the nation of Israel, and what they went through. 
together. Together they were under the cloud. Together they passed through the sea. Together they were all baptized into Moses by going through the Red Sea. He's making a connection to baptism there. And they all ate the same spiritual food. That, of course, is manna. We already read about manna. So there they are in the wilderness together. In verse 4, it says, They all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ, the Messiah. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. (laughs) That's very true. God was not well pleased. They just kept grumbling and complaining. But here we find out that the rock was Christ. It says in verse 4 that they drank the same spiritual drink, and they were drinking from a spiritual rock, that the waters that flowed out of the rock. That was their drink. And it says that these, these waters followed them. The rock itself, of course, didn't move. There's no note of that anywhere. <clears throat> but continually their drink, just like continually their manna for 40 years or their food for 40 years was the manna. It seems as though their drink continually was the water that came from the rock. The water followed them. And this rock, this provision was the Messiah, Jesus Christ himself. The Son of God was their provision. Of course, you know, again, we're on this side of history. We're able to look back and to see all these things in ways that they couldn't have seen those things, knowing that the Son of God was the one who was providing for them water from the rock. He was the one sustaining them. He's the bread of heaven. He's the fountain of life. He's the water that flowed from the rock to take care of his people. But isn't that amazing that we do know that? And that as we look at that story, we can see Jesus providing for his people all the way back in the wilderness when they were led out of Egypt. That's just, that's just very amazing. But as we kind of wrap up now with, oh, wow, I've gone way long. As we wrap up this thought, I want you to consider, is Jesus your bread and your water? We've been talking about bread and water here. There was some Sabbath talk in the middle, but the manna, the water that flowed from the rock, these, of course, are just kind of shadows of the substance, which is Christ. Christ comes along and says, I'm the bread of heaven. One of his apostles writes about him and says, he's that rock, he's that water that 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 rock that followed them the water that provided for them in the wilderness that was Christ and i i wonder in your life is jesus truly your bread and water these are the most basic provisions for you to live is he your life is he your sustenance and i'm not talking about a jesus of your imagination but the real jesus because there are lots of different definitions for Jesus out there. We would, I'm sure, agree that, you know, the atheist description of Jesus is no good. The atheist that says, yeah, I think Jesus may have lived, but he's just some guy with influence and that's it. Yeah, we reject that definition of Jesus, don't we? Well, we want to be careful not to build up a Jesus of our own imagination. We want to know Jesus as he truly is and believe in him as he truly is. And the Jesus who is bread from heaven, the Jesus who 
is sustaining his people with water is the one who has life in himself. Gospel of John again, chapter 5. Jesus has life in himself, and he offers that life to us through his finished work because he is the one true God. Only God can have life in and of himself. He is not some creation of God. He is not an older brother. Like we, you know, we're kind of like Jesus, except he's, you know, older and better and bigger than us. It's not like that at all. He's our creator. He is our maker. He is the one who made us. He is the Lord. Is he your bread and water? Is he your life? Are you willing to die for this Jesus? When he called people to follow him, he said, He who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Meaning, he who is not willing to die for me, the true God, he's not worthy of me. If Jesus is just a creature, an older brother, well, he's less than God, isn't he? He's less than. But if he is the one true God of the universe, that changes everything. He's worth living for. He's worth dying for. He is worth changing your whole life for. He's worth dropping everything and following. That's what the disciples did. They were out fishing and doing other stuff, and Jesus called them, and they dropped everything and followed him. Because he is who he said he was. He is the great I am. He taught people and said, before Abraham was, I am. He is Jehovah. He is Elohim. He is the one true God. I hope you're seeing that in the book of Exodus as you connect it to some of these New Testament passages because Jesus wants us to recognize, to understand, and to believe that he is God and that he is our provider and that ultimately he provided us salvation through his finished work on the cross in our place for our sins. And next week, we'll talk about that a little more, because next week is Easter. And uh, it'll all just be all about the gospel. So hope you're able to tune in. Thanks for joining me today. Feel free to reach out with any thoughts or questions you have. God bless.